As many of you know, I grew up in Arkansas, and uh, after graduating high school, I went to the University of Arkansas, the home of the Arkansas Razorbacks, and I got to see some, some good football while I was there, got to see some great athletes play, and there was one player there who played shortly after I graduated who was a quarterback by the name of Matt Jones. Here's a picture of him up on the screen. Matt Jones was a a pretty good college quarterback, but he was a phenomenal athlete, which made him a very special player at Arkansas. He was 6'5", 220, ran a 4'3", 40. He had some incredible years at Arkansas because he was such a gifted athlete. And because that was the, the case, he was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft by the Jacksonville Jaguars as a wide receiver, and he was drafted on his athleticism alone. But the issue that many in Jacksonville, Florida had with Matt Jones was the same issue that many Arkansas Razorback fans had with Jones. Though he was a special athlete, though he was extremely gifted, he was a complacent player. He almost always looked like this on the sidelines. Look at this pic here, yeah. Looks like uh, he'd rather be in bed than out playing. Look, look at this next pick here. He, he almost always just, just looked like this, you know. It could, be a, it could be a blowout. It could be a close game. It could be overtime, last few seconds of a close bowl game, and Jones would look sort of like this or, or like the previous pictures. Now, he didn't get nervous, which helped him pull a lot of close games out in his college career, but he also didn't get too worked up either. And this attitude upset many people in in Jacksonville. They felt as if Jones was just happy to, to sit back and coast and collect his millions and was not all that concerned with how he played or if he played or if the Jaguars won. And he didn't last long in the NFL. Though they knew he was a special player, a gifted athlete, his complacency concerned them, and rightfully so. The prophet we're going to look at this morning has the exact same issues, the exact same concerns. He is accusing the Israelites of the exact same thing. We're going to be in Malachi this morning. And Malachi's argument is this. He's saying to the Jews in the South, you guys are complacent. You are content with where you are. You're not on fire for the Lord. You're not pursuing holiness and godliness. You're complacent. And and Malachi, in this book, is urging his readers. He's urging the Jews of his day to not be that way. He's saying, don't be complacent, but instead, get up, get busy living for God. So let's look at Malachi this morning. If you're not there yet, turn there now. Malachi is fairly easy to find. It's the last book in the Minor Prophets section of Scripture and the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, just flip backwards one book and you'll be in Malachi. Today we are ending our series in the Minor Prophets. And though we've said that the books in this section of Scripture are not necessarily in chronological sequence, Malachi is. It's the last book in the Old Testament and thought to be the last book written 
in the Old Testament around 420 B.C. In the previous two books, the book of Haggai and Zechariah, remember we said that they were written after Judah had returned from Babylonian captivity and they were written before the temple was completed. The book of Malachi, however, is written about 50 years or more after the temple was rebuilt. So after the prophet Haggai and Zechariah tell God's people to rebuild his temple, they finally do. And after that, God's people sit back and they wait for God's kingdom to come. And guess what? 50 years pass and not a word from God. And the people begin to become complacent. They start losing hope. They begin to doubt God. At the beginning of this book, we see that they're questioning God's love. They're saying, how have you loved us, God? Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Malachi responds in the first part of chapter 1 and throughout this book by telling them God has chosen you. You are his people. You are his covenant people. He has restored you. He's not done that with Edom. He took Edom out and they're gone. They're not coming back. But he has restored you. So Malachi says, don't be complacent. Turn back to, look to, trust in, and follow hard after God. Folks, Malachi's message is so very important for us to hear today. This message is so applicable for us today because it's so easy for us to become complacent. Am I right? It really is. We've been studying through church history in our FBU class. And throughout church history, you see this constant pattern of the church, you know, on fire for God, and then it becomes complacent, and then you have faithful followers of Christ stand up, call for reform, and a fire is lit under God's people again, and then over time, the church becomes complacent once again. And the question for us today is this, where are we today? Where are you individually? Have we become complacent as a church, and have you become complacent individually? In this book, Malachi gives us a way we can test ourselves to see if we, like the Jews in his day, have become complacent in our relationship with God. In this book, Malachi makes mention of several questions asked by the Jews of his day that showed that they had, in fact, become complacent in what what they were to do in response. And they, they tell us what we're to do in response when we become complacent. So let's look at these questions. If you're asking these questions, chances are good you become complacent in your relationship with God. Question number one, how have I sinned? How have I sinned? If you're asking this question, there is a good chance you become complacent. Now let me say this. There is a good and healthy way to ask this question, but the Jews in Malachi's day were asking this question in a rhetorical way. They were saying it like this. What's wrong with us? What have we done? How have we wronged you? How have we sinned? Look at Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father and a servant is master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? God is calling out these priests here in Israel. And he's saying to them, you have sinned against me. You have despised my name. But they say in response, how? How have we done this? How have we sinned against you? How have we despised your name? Not the best way to respond when God very definitively says, you've done it, right? How have we done that, God? But that's the way they were responding. And notice God answers them. Look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? God had clearly told them that he wanted the best from them. He wanted the best sacrifices they had to offer. But after 50 years of nothing happening in the temple, after 50 years without a word from God, they decided that instead of giving God their best, they would give him the rest. They would give him what's left. So they were offering blind and diseased animals and were keeping the best for themselves. They were going through the motions in worship. They were complacent. And God tells the priest, notice in Malachi 2, that he's going to curse them and he's going to curse their blessings as a result. He is serious about this thing, isn't he? We learn all throughout Scripture that there is nothing that enrages God more than when we become complacent and simply go through the motions in worship, giving Him lip service, and give God the rest rather than giving Him our best. Listen to what God says through Malachi in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. Remember, God gave a similar word to those in the northern kingdom through Amos. Remember that? When he said, I hate your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. God is saying something very similar here. He he says, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. He says, "My, my name will be great among you or it must not even be spoken by you. That's what God's saying. He says, I would rather you close the doors to your place of worship rather than you go through the motions of worship. Church, what would he say to us today? Just think of that in light of this text here. But that's what they were doing. They were offering up the rest rather than the best, and then they had the audacity to say, what's wrong with what we're doing? How have we sinned? 
They were going through the motions and did not see one thing wrong with it. They thought, we're, we're doing all we need to do. We're good with God. We've got this worship thing, this holiness thing licked. We're doing what God requires of us. What do you mean when you say we have sinned? Folks, this is not to be our mentality. God wants us to see our need of him and approach him in worship in that way. He wants us to come with all we got. He wants us to bring it all with our best. And he wants us to to lay it at his feet and wants us to look to him and trust in him for everything and wants us to praise him for all that we have and be willing to lay it all down before him. That's what he wants. He wants us to understand that we are who we are because of him and wants us to see our need of him moment by moment, day after day. The key to fighting complacency is to have a right view of God, folks, and a right view of ourselves. to understand that God is a holy God who demands perfection. He demands for us to be holy as he is and to understand that we've fallen infinitely short of his perfect standard and understand that God has provided for us all that he requires of us to understand that he has made us holy through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus, and to understand that we are who we are because of him and that we owe everything we are to him. It's a slap in the face to God when we fail to to see his work in our lives and when we fail to see our need of him and when we just go through the motions and worship. Think about the situation with the Israelites. They were no longer in captivity, were they? They had been restored. They were back in the promised land. The temple had been rebuilt and they still refused to see their need of God and refused to lay everything down before him. And this is the way, again, many of us are. And if this is you, If this is you this morning, if you're just going through the motions with God and think your outward acts of of empty devotion is all you need, if you feel you are where you need to be, think again. Think again. You become complacent spiritually. A healthy Christian, folks, is a needy Christian. One who sees his or her need of God's grace moment by moment of every day and one who understands that by his grace we are what we are and one who gives his or her best back to God. Here's the second question, number two. If you're asking this question, this is a really good chance you become complacent. Why don't my good actions outweigh my bad? Many in Malachi's day were reasoning in this way. Many were saying, I know I'm no saint, but I'm, I'm better than some. I'm good a good deal of the time, so why don't my good actions outweigh my bad? Look at Malachi 2, 13-14. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? You see, the Israelites were going to God. They were offering him things, not the best though, right? But they were offering him things and they were praying to him and they were expecting him to respond. They were expecting him to be pleased and he is not. So they go back to God and they they ask him, why are you not pleased? 
with our offering. Why are you not pleased with us? We're doing what you say. Why, why are you not hearing our prayers? Look at what he says, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Question. Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. As we've said already, we'll say it again and again this morning, the Israelites were complacent, and their complacency led to sinful activity. Notice that they were being unfaithful to their wives, and they were going after other women, ungodly women, pagan women, we learn. And God says very clearly here through Malachi, you guys are being faithless. You are leaving your wives to go after these ungodly women. He says, you're breaking this spiritual union that I have formed for you, for the purpose of you having godly children, which is not very likely if they're going after pagan women, right? He says, you're breaking this covenant you've made to one another and to me, and then you have the nerve to think that outward religious activity is going to cancel out your godless actions. He says it doesn't work that way. God wanted the Israelites to know that he was not going to be treated like some idol who could be appeased by outward acts of devotion. God makes it very clear here. Their good does not outweigh their bad. He makes it clear here. Outward actions do not cancel out sinful activity. Folks, we need to hear this message because many of us have a tendency to reason in this way as well, don't we? Many of us, we think, I know I'm not living the way that I should, but at least I'm going to church. Surely, that cancels out the other. Folks, God doesn't deal with us in this way. He doesn't. He doesn't place our works on a scale and say, well, Graham's not doing this, but he is doing that, and this outweighs that, so he's okay. God doesn't view us in this way. He doesn't want us to reason in this way. He wants us to trust in his son. He wants us to follow him with our whole heart. He wants us to pursue godliness. He wants us to repent of the sins in our life and trust that he has forgiven us and he will forgive us and restore us and keep us and grow us in godliness. He doesn't want us to ever be okay with sin, never. Though we struggle in this life, Though at times we mess up. He wants us to be messed up about messing up, repent of those things, and move on with him and continue to press on, pursue godliness, and not be complacent. Here's the third question. If you're asking this question, there's a good chance you have become complacent. Question number three, why is God unfair? Why is God unfair? If you're asking this question, there's a good chance you become complacent. Look at Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice all right let me explain this here's the mindset of the Israelites they're thinking to themselves we're God's chosen people right I mean we're, we're the people of the covenant we're supposed to be God's chosen people, the ones who are favored by him. But as we look around, we don't seem to be the people God's blessing. It seems as if the evil, godless nations that surround us are the nations that God delights in because they're prospering while we're struggling. Though we are God's chosen people, the one he favors, the one he blesses, it seems as if God is blessing everyone else but us. Where is the God of justice, they were saying. Why is God being unfair to us? Look at how God responds in Malachi 3.1. He says, behold, I send my messenger. There's some great prophecy here. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Notice what God's saying here. Great prophecy here. Here he makes mention of the coming of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to come. He is God's messenger. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He makes mention of him at the end of this book as well. And he's going to come and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. But he's also telling us here, Malachi is, not just of, the, of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for the first coming, but he's also making reference of Christ's return here as well because he, he makes mention here of this, this day that's coming, this day of judgment that's coming. And we know that's coming as well. So Christ is coming, but he's also coming in judgment. Remember, they were questioning the justice and the fairness of God. Notice what God says here. He says, you want me to give you what's fair? You want me to be just? Okay, I'll come to you. And I'll give you the justice you're begging me for. God's being sarcastic here with his people. He's saying, you want what is fair? You just wait till the day of the Lord. Then you'll see my justice. Then you'll see my fairness. But, notice there, key word there, but, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Basically, what Malachi is saying here is, though you are crying out for God to treat you fairly and give everyone what they deserve, you don't truly want that. You want the grace that Christ brings. You don't want the judgment that he brings. Though you think you want what is fair, you don't want that. Because if you get fair from God, you get his judgment. Folks, we often approach God in this way. When things don't go our way, we question God's fairness. We say, God, you're not treating me fairly. So-and-so has this, and so-and-so is not having to go through that. At times, we become so comfortable and complacent when it comes to God's love and his favor and his grace that when things don't go our way, we begin to think that God owes us something. That's the way the Israelites felt as well. So they began to question God on the basis of fairness, and we do that as well. God tells us very clearly, again, in his word, we don't want him to be fair to us. Because if we get fairness, we get judgment. 
We get hell if we get fair because that's what we deserve. We are our sinners. We've turned away from the God who made us and who created us to have a right relationship with him. We have turned away from him. We've set ourselves against him. And scripture is clear. He has set himself against us and we deserve God's judgment. Folks, every good thing we have in life, get this, it's not because we deserve it, but because God has graciously given it to us. He didn't have to give it. He didn't. God could have chosen not to save any one of us and he would have been just in doing so. That would be fair because we deserve judgment because of our sin. Now, thankfully, he is gracious and merciful to us, but judgment is what we deserve. So if you're questioning God's fairness, chances are good that you become complacent. You're not seeing God's grace and mercy very clearly. Not seeing that everything that you have has been given by him. It's, it's a blessing. It's, it's undeserved. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you see that. You see that everything you have in life is from God and nothing is deserved. As you grow in your knowledge of who God is and who you are, you come to understand that what you deserve is judgment and death and hell. Therefore, you don't want fair. You want grace. And thankfully... That's what God gives. Though judgment is certain, remember we talked about that? Grace is possible. Grace is available. That's what you need. Here's the fourth question. If you're asking this question, this is a red flag that you have become complacent. Question number four, what do I owe God? What do I owe God? If you are asking this question, chances are good you become complacent. This is a question that the Israelites were asking. Look at Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Notice God begins this passage by stating very definitively, I do not change. He says, I am unchanging. He says, because that's the case, I'm going to remain committed to the promise that I made to your forefathers. That's why I haven't abandoned you. I kept my word. I'm keeping my word and I will keep it. But he says, you have turned away from me. You've turned away from my ways. You become complacent and I want you to return to me. But notice in response, the people ask, how are we to return to you? And God says, I'll tell you how, quit robbing me. And then they say, how have we robbed you? God says, Malachi 3.10, look at it. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. At this time, the Israelites were supposed to bring one-tenth of what they had. Whether it was money or food or their animals, one-tenth of what they had, they were to bring before God. But over time, as we have said many times already this morning, they have become complacent spiritually. They begin to say, you know what? I think I'll hold on to what I've got. 
They were probably thinking, you know, he's God. He doesn't need it. I'll hold on to what to, to what's mine, what they thought was theirs. Well, here God says through Malachi, you guys have become complacent. You've stopped giving me what you owe me. And they say, what do we owe you? God says one-tenth of everything of yours. And notice also God says, put me to the test in this. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He says, test me in this. Give me a tenth of what you have and see if I will not bless you for it. You see, the problem here is that the Israelites, they had began to to think of their stuff as being their stuff. They, They began to think of their money as their money and didn't think they owed anything to God. And a lot of the times we have the exact same mentality, right? We think, what do I owe God? My stuff is my stuff. I've worked hard for it. I've, I've earned it. What do I owe him? God answers this very clearly for us folks. All throughout his word, he says, all you owe me is everything. All we owe God, folks, is all we have. Now, he lets us have stuff. And, it, and he doesn't always call us to just give everything away. He allows us to have possessions, but he wants us to have this mentality. He wants us to be willing to lay it all down before him and understand that it's all his. Everything we have is his. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he asked the Corinthians, what do you have that God did not give to you? It's a good question, isn't it? For those of you all say, I work hard for my money. Who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gives you the actions of your hands and feet? God does. Everything you have, God has given to you. So all we owe him is everything. God says, I don't want you to think of your stuff as being your stuff. I want you to live with the understanding that I own everything and I've given everything to you and all you owe me is everything. Is that your mindset, folks? Do you live with the mindset that that God owns everything? Are you living with the mindset that all you have is his and all you owe him is everything? If this is not your mindset, the chances are good that you have become complacent. Here's the fifth question. If you're asking this question, this last question here, this is a red flag, you become complacent. Question number five, why should I serve God? Believe it or not, this is a question that the Israelites were asking. They're asking, why should we serve him? Look at Malachi 3.14. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Notice here they're saying it's vain, it's futile, it's pointless to serve God. They were saying, what benefit is there to serving him? Now, why were they saying this? This is, this is pretty harsh, isn't it? God even says at the first part of verse 13, your words have been hard against me. I mean, this is, these are hard words here. Once again, think about the context here. They had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. They had been continuing to offer sacrifices to God in the temple and serve him by keeping the requirements that he had placed upon them. And they had heard nothing from God in 
50 years. Over that time, they had become complacent, so much so that they were questioning their service to him. They were thinking, we've been serving God our entire lives, and we have received very little, if anything, from him in return. They were looking around to the surrounding nations, and they're watching them prosper, you know, in, in, in economically and politically and militarily. They're looking at the strength and the prosperity of those other nations who were not serving God and then looking to themselves, and they were thinking to themselves, what are we doing? This seems pointless. This seems of, of no benefit to us. Why do this? Why serve God? Notice God's answer, Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And in chapter 4, he goes on by talking about the coming day of the Lord. Why should you serve me? Answer simple, because judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Notice what we have here. The Israelites are asking a very direct, straightforward question. Why should we serve you? And, and God says, because one day I'm going to divide those who know me and love me and live for me from those who don't. He says, on that day, the day of the Lord, I'm going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve me and between those who do not. Why should you serve me? Because my judgment is coming. That's why you should love me. That's why you should trust in me and live for me. Because one day I'm going to separate those who do from those who don't, and I'm going to enter into judgment with those who don't. So once again... So we've seen all throughout this section of Scripture, God through Malachi again here is trying to spark a fire under this group of complacent Israelites and he does so by speaking of his coming judgment, this final judgment, this final day of the Lord. He basically tells them, don't be complacent, repent, turn back to me with your whole heart, look to me, love me, trust in me and live for me and I'll restore you and forgive you. But if you don't, you're going to have to face me and my judgment in the last day. Now get this, after this book was written, there is what is called the silent years. For 400 years, there's no writing, no prophets, no revelation, no word from God. And you think people were complacent after 50 years of not a word from God? Think about how they were after 400 years. But what does God do after 400 years of silence? Remember, we're about to celebrate it. We're told at the right time in the fullness of time, God sends his son Jesus to accomplish our salvation. Malachi even prophesies about it at the very end of his book. He talks about the coming of John the Baptist who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And then shortly after he does that, Christ's ministry begins. So God sends his son Jesus to accomplish our salvation. After he does that, after he died and rose again, before returning to be with the Father, he promised he would return once again. And guess how long that's been, folks? 
over 2,000 years, right? And there, there are many today, like the Israelites in Malachi's day and the Jews in Jesus' day, who are complacent, questioning why they should serve God and trust in Christ when it seems as if he will never return. Folks, one thing we learn in this section of Scripture is that no matter how much time has passed, Listen, if God has said it, if he has determined it, it's going to happen. As sure as God sent Malachi 50 years after his people rebuilt the temple, and as sure as he sent his son 400 years after Malachi, Christ is returning, folks. You can bank on that. Though we don't know when, we know he's coming. He's coming back. And the question for you today is this, are you ready? Are you ready? If not, I I urge you today, ready yourself. Prepare yourself by turning from your sin and making Christ your Lord. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would before you leave here today. Let's pray.